I hope we haven't been too subtle that it's all about Jesus this morning. Happy Resurrection Sunday. This is the highlight of the Christian calendar. This is big. This is so big, I like to think of Easter as the Christmas of religious holidays. Think about it, it, it makes sense. I have two goals this morning. My first goal is to encourage those of you who are already followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, like Krista, whose testimony we just watched. You came to a place in your life where you realize that it's not right. Something has gone wrong. You not only failed to live up to your own standards, but you failed to live up to the standards of a holy God. You knew that you needed God's forgiveness. And so you embraced the forgiveness that can only come in Jesus. Past, present, and future sins all washed away because of him. And so you placed your faith in him. When the Bible said you had no hope, and now you have hope. And my goal is to encourage you this morning as we reflect on the hope that he has given you. But I have a second goal, and that is to convince every single skeptic among us that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is in fact the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that before this service is over that you will receive the invitation that Jesus offers to forgive you and to love you and to welcome you into his family. Some of you are here this morning only because you were promised brunch afterwards. <laughs> Some of you are less skeptical, though you're still not sure about this whole Jesus thing and why it's all that important. And others of you, you're close to believing. You're close to receiving the gospel, but you're not quite there yet. And no matter where you are on that spectrum, my goal, my deepest desire, my prayer, is that you would come to love Jesus as so many of us in this room do. That may sound like a very big task, and it is. Normally, if I was going to try to convince this many skeptics to trust in Christ, I would need a full 30 minutes. But we don't have that kind of time this morning, so we're just going to do the best we can and leave it in the Lord's hands. But on a serious note, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that this is not merely an intellectual experience. It's not merely an intellectual enterprise, although many skeptics may think it is. And that may be your posture this morning. You may be thinking, okay, try to convince me. But that's not actually how it works, not totally. Yes, the God who put the brain in your head expects you to use it. He doesn't want you to turn it off. In fact, the Bible repeatedly encourages us to do just that. One passage is found in Isaiah verse, chapter 1, verse 18, where it says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. But at the end of the day, no one will reject Jesus for lack of evidence. No one ultimately will say no to Jesus' offer because they did not have sufficient evidence to make a reasonable decision. You may think that's the way it is, but you should know that that's not the way the Bible puts it. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That may sound strong, but it's critically important because if you're listening this morning, waiting to be convinced intellectually, and that's all you're waiting for, it is likely that you will miss what the Lord is saying to you. The things of God are intellectual. The Christian faith is reasonable. Pure faith is not blind. It is based on evidence, historical evidence. But we must not come to the creator of the universe demanding answers, demanding proof, as if he hasn't done his job until we are convinced. Because at the end of the day, it's actually a heart matter. It is a matter of the heart. And that is a recurring warning in the Bible. And you see it in Hebrews 4, 7, where it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. To harden your hearts means to tell God that you're not interested in what he has to say. You're closing yourself off to him. And so I want to plead with you. Do not harden your heart against the Lord. No matter how skeptical you are, soften your heart. Be open to whatever it is that he wants to say to you. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. A perfectly acceptable prayer might sound like this. God, I don't know if you're listening. I don't even know if you're there. But if you are, I want to know. I don't want to live a lie. I want to know the truth. Please show me. The scripture we'll be looking at this morning is found in a letter to Titus. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. You can find it on page 998 in the blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Unless you're in the front row, in which case you are completely out of luck. <laughs> but I would uh, encourage you to turn to it because I believe there's value in seeing the printed Word of God in your hands uh, or even on your screens. Now, Titus was a co-worker of the much better-known Apostle Paul whose own story of coming to faith in Christ is really a remarkable one. He was a very religious man, and yet he didn't know God which is not an uncommon story. In fact, he hated Jesus, and he hated his followers, and he violently pursued and attacked them until one day when Jesus confronted Paul and his mercy, he saved him. And Paul's story is found in the book of Acts of the New Testament, and if you're not familiar with it, then I would encourage you to check that out. And in this letter, Paul is giving Titus instruction on how to help the church on the island of Crete. And one of the most important jobs that Titus had was to make sure that the gospel was being presented accurately. And that's what he's saying in our passage this morning, in verses 11 through 14, which say this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There is a lot here. 
I, I would like to say that we're going to walk through this passage, but we are actually going to run through this passage. But take comfort, I run about a 14-minute mile, so you should have no trouble keeping up with me. <laughs> Our theme this morning is hope changes everything, but it, it's not just hope. It's the object of our hope. Christ changes everything. Jesus Christ changes everything, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And what we see in this passage are three reasons why we can trust or hope in Jesus. And the first is this. Jesus offers you forgiveness. Jesus offers you forgiveness. That's what verse 11 says. It tells us that, tells us that God's grace his undeserved favor, his undeserved blessing to us has come to bring salvation for all people. Now, salvation is, is far more than just forgiveness. In salvation, we're saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and ultimately the very presence of sin in heaven. But forgiveness is a critical aspect of salvation because the Bible tells us that our sin is why people don't have a relationship with God, why we are alienated from him. And we all sin. We all disobey God's laws. Just take the top 10, the 10 commandments. Nobody fulfills those perfectly all the time. We can't. So it's April Fool's Day. So let's talk a little bit about being foolish. It's a subject I'm well familiar with. One of the most foolish things that you could do is refuse to admit that you're guilty when everybody around you knows that you're guilty. Children are probably the best at this. But thanks to the miracle of YouTube, their shenanigans have been exposed. <laughs> and so I did a little research on this yesterday. I watched a video showcasing a little boy named Johnny, who was about two to three years old. And the video begins with a close-up of his face, which is clearly covered in some kind of food product. And his mom asks him, Johnny, did you have any snacks? And he says, nope, no snacks. She's like, Johnny, it's not nice to lie. Did you have any snacks? Nope, mm -mm. no snacks. Johnny, your face is covered in sprinkles. And he looks, doesn't seem phased, puts his finger on maybe the one spot on his face where there isn't a sprinkle, and he goes, no sprinkles. And he's probably thinking to himself, Mom, I don't know where you got your intel from, but it's obviously unreliable. I'm clearly innocent. She then brings him over to the pantry where there's a tall bottle of sprinkles that's now only about a quarter full, and sprinkles are spilled everywhere. And she says, well, Johnny, if you didn't have any sprinkles, why is the bottle of sprinkles empty? And he looks and goes, it's not empty. Well, technically he's right, but he's ignoring the sprinkles that are all over the place. And at this point, he must be thinking, there's no way she can prove that I did this. And he might even be thinking, Mom, your entire case against me is falling apart. Why are we even having this conversation? And the video ends before Johnny ever confesses. And so my advice to you is don't be like Johnny. You're guilty. God knows you're guilty. Admit you're guilty. You don't have to deny it. There's actually a better way. God has a solution to your sin. It's called forgiveness. 
That's his solution. That's the better way. After listing a variety of ways that people disobey God's laws, including sexual immorality, drunkenness, theft, greed, the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. He said, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Washed, washed of all your sins, sanctified, made holy by God, and justified. That is what Jesus does for sinners who trust in him. And so hear me, no matter what you have done, even if only you and God know it, no matter what it is, the power of Jesus' death and resurrection to forgive your sin is complete. No matter what you've done. Your sin, all of your sin, can be put on Jesus who satisfied the wrath, the righteous anger of God against your sin, against you, by trusting in him and by receiving him. And now some of you may still believe that you don't need God's forgiveness. After explaining the gospel to them, I've had people tell me, I'm not that bad. Well, all you need to know from God's word is that God apparently thinks you are that bad and that I'm that bad and that we need God's forgiveness because that's what verse 11 says, that he came to bring salvation to everyone. That includes you and that includes me. But let me ask you, don't you ever cringe when you're reminded of something that you said or did even years ago? Doesn't sometimes that keep you up at night? Is there a recurring sin in your life that makes you feel so dirty and you have no way to get clean? Or maybe it's not even just a single sin. Maybe it's the kind of person that you've become. And you look at yourself and say, what happened? There's hope. There's forgiveness. There's washing, but only in Jesus. The second reason to hope in Jesus is that Jesus offers a new life. A new life. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live life, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Why do we need God's forgiveness? Because we don't often renounce the things of this world, the ungodliness and the worldly passions. Apart from Christ, we embrace them. Those are the very things that we want. But it's, it's more than just forgiveness that we need. We need a new life. Otherwise, in a short matter of time, we'll be back exactly where we are now. A life of embracing ungodliness is a life that Jesus came to set you free from. A life that pursues worldliness is a life of slavery. And Jesus said that he came to give us an abundant life, a life that is far greater than you and I can even imagine. It is the life that you were created by God to experience. It's the life that the devil will do anything he can to keep you from getting. But it's the life that Jesus freely offers you. So let's contrast these two lives from the Bible's perspective. 
apart from Christ, it's a life of ungodliness. It's living a life that incurs God's anger, his holy anger against your sin. Apart from Christ, it's a life of worldly passions, which means indulging in the perversions of God's good gifts. But in Christ, we are being trained to be self-controlled, which means that we are in control of our desires rather than they being in control of us. In Christ, we are training to be upright, which means that our relationships with others are healthy and holy. And in Christ, we are being trained to live godly lives, lives that actually please the Lord. And so which kind of life do you want to live? Which is the life that you want? Many Christians are used to be called fools. We're fools for following Christ. We're fools for allegedly not having any fun in our lives. As if the only kind of fun that you can have is through sexual immorality and through drunkenness and through doing anything that your heart desires, no matter how good or bad or healthy or unhealthy. And yet it's all too common to hear stories of people who have done just that. They've experienced all the pleasures and the power, whatever, but they found it empty because it is empty. A well-known comedian put it this way. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. And to my knowledge, he doesn't know the Lord yet. But he knows that that's not the answer. The third reason to hope in Jesus is that Jesus offers you himself. Let's take a look at verses 13 and 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Hope, there it is. There it is. We are waiting for the blessed hope the second coming, the appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That says it all. But notice the wording. It doesn't just say his appearing, but the glory of his appearing. In other words, Jesus' second coming won't be like his first. He will not be mistaken. People will see him as he is. And if they don't know him, they will fear when they see him. But that is the Christian's hope. Notice the reason this verse gives for why Jesus gave himself for us. It says to redeem us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, which means that we will be with him forever. That is our blessed hope. That is why he is coming back for his people. When we receive Jesus, we are welcomed into his family. We become a people for his own possession. First, he redeems us. Now, I, I don't know about you, if you're maybe my age, but uh, when I think about redeemed, I actually think about the 10 cents you used to get for returning a Coke bottle. And when I was a kid, a friend of mine and I used to walk about a mile to the local grocery store carrying an eight-pack of uh, Coke in each hand, which would total $1.80. 
You could redeem those for 10 cents each, $1.60, I think, if my math is, is right. And, and um, whatever it was, candy bars, it's not a math lesson. <laughs> We're going to fix this in post-production anyway, so. It was between $1.50 and $2, okay? Candy bars were about 20 cents. I could get eight candy bars. I think that's right. I mean, I could go and take my parents' Coke bottles, walk a mile and get, get eight candy bars. I would do that today if I could. So that's what redemption is in, in part. Redemption is revealing, getting back the value of something. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He has gotten back the value, displayed the value that God put in us, but that was hidden because of our alienation from God, because of our sin. He has redeemed us. But secondly, he has adopted us into his family. Something more amazing than we can possibly understand. He has made us his own. He has made us part of his family. We are his people. Now think about that. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever wondered who your people are or if you belong? I think at times when there are deaths in our families, when we're going to a new school, maybe moving to a new city, those feelings arise, those questions come, and we ask, do I belong? Who's, whose people am I? In an important sense, all of us, apart from God, are alone. Even if you have been blessed with a wonderful family and friends, they are not always with you. They don't know you completely. They don't perfectly understand you. They don't perfectly love you. Only God does. I have been blessed with a wonderful set of parents who love one another and who've loved me since I was born probably some exceptions they would mention through the years. <laughs> I also have four siblings that I actually like and I enjoy spending time with. I married into a huge and loving Italian family. And I have a wife who is a joy to live with. And I have four children who absolutely love to hear me preach. <laughs> I thought I could slip that in. But at times, I still feel alone. And when I do, I remember the Lord who is always with me, who will never leave me, who will never forsake me. But if Jesus didn't come to earth to die, and if he wasn't raised from the dead by the power of his Father, then I would not know him. I could not know him. And I would be alone. And so would you. But Jesus has come, and he will come again. And he will gather his people, and they will be his possession. And there is hope in Christ because he offers you himself. Listen to John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is a relationship with him. He offers you himself. And so, my friends, 
Here's the bottom line. You and I need God's forgiveness. You and I need the new life that Jesus offers. And you and I need Jesus. We need to be his people. We need to be his possession. And that is exactly what Jesus offers. And that is what we celebrate this morning. Our great God and Savior, sacrificed on our behalf, but raised to new life by the Father. And he invites you to participate in that new life this morning. Jesus is the hope that changes everything. Receive him this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God. And Jesus stands willing to receive everyone who calls upon his name, who acknowledges their need of forgiveness, who submits to who Jesus Christ is, embraces him, submits to him, delights in him. Do that work in our hearts, we pray. We are desperate for it. Lord, we thank you that you love everyone who is here. You brought them here. And so now, Father, in your mercy, work in their hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.